Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Thankful to have you guys as we think about coming to celebrate Christmas in just a few weeks here. Uh, Excited to begin a brand new series this morning uh, with you guys. Uh, We spent this fall taking a look at the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And and uh, this, uh, com- starting this morning, and basically, we're going to spend basically all of 2019, probably, uh, just working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, that's kind of a pretty common thing here at River City, where we just kind of pick a book of the Bible and just chug our way through it. And one of the reasons that, why that's kind of the, the culture here at River City is because we want God's Word to be the thing that really is what's informing and transforming both our time together, but also just our hearts. Rather than something I say or some theme I come up with or some creative good idea, rather what we want to try to focus on is having God's Word be the thing that is at the root and at the center of everything that we're doing together uh, when we do those kinds of things. And so that's where we're going to be headed this coming year. I'm really excited about doing that. I'm really looking forward to uh, spending all this time together in the Gospel of Matthew. There's just some really, really incredibly good stuff there, and I can't wait to spend time studying that with you guys. Um, but one thing that's really exciting for me, at least, is, is that in a lot of ways, the book of Matthew, it picks up where Genesis 11 leaves off. Like I said, this fall we spent uh, our time studying Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And like I said, in a lot of ways, the book of Matthew, it picks up where Genesis leaves off. Matthew 1, as we'll see this morning, it begins with a genealogy. And if you're with us this fall, you know that Genesis 1 through 11 was full of genealogies. Much of you guys enjoyed me trying to pronounce the names of all the people in the genealogies. And over the course of Genesis, you will get that great satisfaction and enjoyment again this morning. But what we saw is that the, the point of all the genealogies, the, the point of all those lines is, is not to, to give us some hyper-detailed, all-encompassing list of people for the sake of biblical IRS record keepings or something like that. Rather, in the point of all of the genealogies throughout the book of Genesis is to trace the line of a promise. You see, back in Genesis 3.15, just after sin had entered the world and God had made a promise that one day someone from the line of Adam and Eve was going to come and overcome Satan and sin and death. Someone from the line of Adam and Eve was going to come, overcome and defeat sin. And so every genealogy in Genesis is there to trace the line of that promise, the most important promise. At the end of every genealogy, the question that always lingers for the reader It's just a simple question. Is this the one? Will this be the one? Will this be the one? Will this this last son be the son that is promised, the one that comes to overcome Satan and sin and death? And and just as soon as Genesis 3 ends, we get Genesis 4, and, and a new son is born, and we see the birth of Cain, not the one. Seth then, no. Enosh, no. Noah, maybe? No, no. Shem, no. Then you get finally to Abram in Genesis chapter 11 or anything. Maybe, maybe it's him. Maybe it's him. No, hard no on him. You see, each of these sons is pointing us towards the son through whom God will one day fulfill this promise. But each of these sons is flawed and they, each of them fails. Each of them are broken and full of sin. You see, each one of these sons, they answer that lingering question with a resounding no. Not the one. And the rest of the Old Testament, it continues this way with births and deaths and sons and all these kinds of things until finally we get the book of Malachi and the Old Testament ends and the promised son has still not yet come and then God is silent for 400 years. 
there's 400 years of silence between when the book of Malachi is written and when the first when Jesus comes. And see, and we're we are left thinking, where is God? Did he forget about his promise? Is he ever going to come? Will this promised son ever be here? Has sin won? Has, has death won? And so it's into this pregnant tension that the Gospel of Matthew begins with the very last genealogy in all of the Bible. And like all the other ones before it, this genealogy, it's tracing the line of God's promise. But unlike every other genealogy before it, this one ends not with a flawed and broken and sinful son, but it ends with the promised son. It ends with the hoped for son. It ends with the longed for son. You see, it ends with the true and better son to which all of the other sons were pointing. You see, it ends with Jesus. You see, the word gospel, it means good news. And Matthew begins his gospel with the best news in all of the world, the best news that the world had ever heard. It's, it's the beginning of Matthew's gospel is the proclamation that he is the one, that Jesus is the one that we have been waiting for, that he is the one that he, we have been longing for, that he is the promised son, that the promised son is here. You see, and as we think about celebrating Christmas in just a few weeks, what we're remembering and what we're celebrating is, is more than just the fact that Jesus was born. You see, what we are remembering and what we are celebrating is that the promised Son has finally come. The one to whom all history was pointing. The one to whom all peoples were waiting. He has come and that God kept his promise to send the Son who would finally be the one to overcome Satan and sin and death. You see, Christmas is incredibly good news. And that's where God, Matthew's gospel begins. So let's pray, and we'll dive into God's word this morning. Jesus, we are so thankful for you and for your word. God, thank you that you, would, uh, God, thank you that you have saved for us, that you have kept it for us, so that we might know you, that we might see who you are, and that we might live in light of who you are. And so, God, as we come this morning, we just come with dependent hearts needing you to, God, I need you to fill me so that our time together and what I have to say is worthwhile and valuable and, and has any kind of power or authority. God, and we need you to be the ones that mold and shape our hearts so that we can respond to your word. And so, God, we just come dependent on you. God, we are thankful that your word is good news for us. God, we ask that you would cause it to be good news in our hearts this morning. God, for your glory, for our good, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Buckle up. This one's going to be a fun one, okay? <laughs> Matthew 1 begins this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. 
And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa, and Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, and Jehoram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amon, and Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Okay, we're making it through, right? And after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is the word of God. How many of you guys zoned out in the middle of that, right? (laughs) can be honest. If you did, you missed some incredible baby names, right? I know that like half our church is either pregnant or recently had babies, so like if you're looking for a good baby name, Matthew 1, hot spot right here of just fantastic ones, right? But, you know, most of us, we're not really into genealogies, especially genealogies of other people, right? And so we might think it's odd for Matthew to lead off his gospel with what kind of feels like the snoozer. If you're, if you're starting your, uh, your yearly Bible reading plan in Matthew, right, you're just like, okay, well, let's just... We'll start with the second half of chapter 1 of Matthew, right? We'll skip over the names there. But well, for, Jew, for the Jewish audience that the Gospel of Matthew was written to, genealogies were like announcing the starting lineup at a basketball game. I, I grew up as a Chicago Bulls fan during the Michael Jordan glory years. It was just the greatest. It was just the greatest thing ever. One of my favorite parts of watching any game was the introduction of any Chicago Bulls game. They had undeniably the greatest theme song and introduction of all time, right? I can still hear it in my head, right? It's that, and the MC is like, oh no, introducing your world champion, Chicago Bulls. And he would go player by player, and Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman, and Luke Longley, and Ron Harper, and finally, right, you get at guard from North Carolina, 6'6". Michael Jordan, right? And there's just like this, right? This, this huge, like, just the, the ultimate kind of building, right? And you're thinking, this is amazing. Let's do it, right? Like, let's, we're going to make this happen, okay? And I just remember there just being like this, that was like one of my favorite parts of any of the, any, any Bulls game I got to watch, right? Because there's this huge energy that starts to build, right? That's the kind of announcement, that is the kind of introduction that Matthew is giving us this morning to Jesus. You see, in the way that Matthew introduces Jesus, it tells us a lot about him. And it is meant to build this incredible momentum and incredible excitement about where his gospel is going. And to understand that, we need to understand the structure of it. You see, look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abram to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. You see, this genealogy that Matthew prepares for us and that he has carefully arranged 
for us is built on three groups of 14 names. And so what you need to understand is that this genealogy is not meant to be a comprehensive genealogy. There's about 2,100 years between Abram, where this genealogy starts, and Jesus, where it ends, right? And there are not enough names on that list to cover 2,100 years, right? And so what's important to understand, right, is that some names have been left out, but what's more important to understand is that who is in here is really important, You see, the names that Matthew includes here are really important. And this wasn't sketchy at all. This was commonplace, right? Because it's not like Matthew was trying to edit out Jesus' genealogy. Rather, what he's trying to do is he's trying to tell a story. He's trying to articulate. He's trying to tell us something about Jesus. You see, in the ancient world, your genealogy was like your resume. And just like it is today, what you put on your resume and how you structure it says a lot about how you are trying to present yourself. Right, and who you are trying to present yourself to, you see? And so Matthew's genealogy is carefully selected, and it is structured like this because Matthew is trying to explain to us something about who he is introducing. He has something very important that he wants us to know. And so this genealogy is not just a list of names. It is the beginning of a story, and it's an important introduction. You see, the question that we need to ask this morning is, what is Matthew trying to tell us? Who is he presenting this Jesus to be? And see, what I've realized as I studied this week is that the amount of things that Matthew is trying to teach us in this simple list of names is wildly incredible. We, we have time to barely scratch the surface of all of the depth that is in this list of names. We saw already in the introduction that Matthew's genealogy is telling us that Jesus is this promised son the one who has come, the one who answers that question of will this be the one with the first yes. But Matthew doesn't just introduce Jesus as the son or even the son. He introduces him as a king who is ushering in a brand new kingdom, and that is the theme of Matthew's gospel. You see, throughout this genealogy and throughout the course of the rest of this book, Matthew is doing is he is introducing us to the king and the kind of kingdom that he brings. That is the whole theme of the book of Matthew. could be the gospel of Matthew, the king and his kingdom. That's at the heart of what's going on in the book of Matthew. And so what Matthew is doing this morning, the first thing I want us to see is that Matthew is introducing us to Jesus the king. You see, this genealogy begins by telling us that Jesus is the son of a king. The genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. You see, King David was Israel's best king. He was described as a man after God's own heart. He was the high point of Israel's kingly rule. Everyone kind of looks forward to David. Everybody looks back on him, wishing they could have him back afterwards. But for all his good, David was a wicked sinner, just like the rest of us. You see, he was the high point of Israel's kingly history, but he was not the end point. You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises David that another son is coming, Another king in his line is coming who is going to establish his kingdom forever. You see, and from the very beginning, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is that king, that Jesus is this true and better king that David was always pointing us towards. You see, verse 1 says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. You see that word Messiah, it means anointed one, as in the sense of an anointed king. You see, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the descendant of David who would come to rule and reign and who would establish God's kingdom forever. 
And so right off the bat, Matthew is overtly telling us Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed king. He is the true and better king that the, that the great King David was pointing us towards. But he's also telling us that in a more hidden way as well. And I think this is important to see. You see, remember that structure we talked about, those three sets of 14 names? Well, you probably dozed off by the end of the 13th set, by the end of that third set. But if you were paying close attention, what you would find is that all those three sets, they don't all have 14 names in them. You see, that last set, it only has 13 names. Because God is the 14th father who has sent his son to be the true and better king who would come to rule and reign. You see, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the true and the better king that David pointed us toward and that he left us longing for because Jesus is God. And so Matthew's genealogy, even in its structure, is proclaiming that the one who we have been longing for has come. You see, but Matthew is not just telling us about the king, the king, the kind of king that Jesus is. He is telling us about the kind of kingdom that Jesus is going to bring. You see, as we'll see throughout the book of Matthew, the kind of kingdom that Jesus brings is an upside-down kind of kingdom. Remember how we talked about earlier how a genealogy in the ancient world was kind of like your resume? That's how you presented yourself? Well, like today, people mess with their resumes, right? They emphasized the good parts and kind of tried to cut out all of the bad parts. In fact, Herod the Great, we're going to meet him in just a few weeks in chapter 2. He literally had all of the records of his genealogy purged, like officially deleted, because there were people in there he did not want to be associated with people he did not want to have ties to. He did not like what was on his resume. Jesus does the opposite. You see, Jesus brings an upside-down kingdom. He highlights all of the people that everyone else would have either completely ignored or outright tried to hide. See, notice this. There are... I, we have just time to scratch the surface this morning. Notice this, so there are five women in Jesus' in Jesus's genealogy. And that might not really seem strange to us today to have women be in the line of a genealogy. You need to hear this. That never happened in the ancient world. Like that, there's a little asterisk and sometimes like, eh, never. That never happens in the ancient world. You see, women in the ancient world had no rights Oftentimes, women were seen as things rather than as people. You see, and what Jesus does is he goes out of his way to highlight the women who are a part of his line. And oh, what women they are. Tamar and Rahab, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, Ruth, and Mary. You see, what most often gets highlighted about these women is their questionable sexual immorality. Tamar was involved in an incestuous affair, and Rahab was a prostitute, and Bathsheba was an adulteress, and Mary was this unwed teen mother. And what often gets preached is, look, God can even bring a Savior out of this broken sexual history but you need to hear this. That is not why these women are in the list. That is not why these women are in the list. No, if you want to see God's gracious power to bring a Savior through sinners and through sexual brokenness, you just you look at the men on the list. That's who you look at. You see, Abram, he basically tried to trade his wife for personal safety. Not once, twice. David is the one who called Bathsheba to, to his bed, and he was the king. She could not say no. You see, to be adultery is when there is two consenting parties. You see, Bathsheba had no choice in that. Solomon had thousands of wives, 
That's just scratching the surface of this list. You see, these women are not listed here to highlight the gracious power of God to bring a, a savior out of a mess of sinners. The rest of the list does that just fine. No, these women are here to show us that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom because it causes outsiders to become the family of God. You see, all of these women, except for Mary, were Gentiles. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was married to Uriah the Hittite. You see, the picture that these women are painting for us in the genealogy of Jesus is that not only are outsiders brought in, but outsiders become listed on the resume of the You see, the kind of kingdom that Jesus brings is an upside-down kingdom, but it is also a kingdom of incredibly gracious blessings. You see, Jesus is bringing into his family people from all nations. Remember last week we saw this, the promise that God was making to Abraham that he was going to bless him and that through him he was going to bless all of the nations. You see, Jesus is the ultimate blessing, and knowing and being known by him is the ultimate blessing. Being adopted by him into his family is the ultimate blessing, and it is a blessing, you need to hear this, that comes only by grace. You see, there is not a single name on this list that deserves to be on it. Not one of the people mentioned here deserves to be named in the line of Jesus the King. Not one of them has earned it. Not one of them has been worthy of it. Every single name on this list is a name that is there only by God's gracious blessing. You see, this list starts with Abraham, who God saved out of a barrenness and idol worship, and it only gets better from there. You see, no one deserves the honor and the privilege of being included in Jesus' family line. But what we see here is names that are. You see, Jesus is unashamed to name liars and murderers and prostitutes and adulterers as people he is proud that they are in his family tree. He is including them. He is owning them. He is not ashamed of them. And where every other resume of every other king sought to purge all of that stuff out of their resume, the resume of King Jesus says, I will own all of it. And I will go out of my way to highlight the mess. You see, the message of Jesus is not just good advice for how to live. It is good news for sinners and outsiders like you and me. Because the only way in is Jesus' grace. You see, Tim Keller, he notes it this way. The gospel of Jesus shows that, that no one, even the greatest, does not need the grace of God. And that no one, not even the worst, can fail to receive it. You see, prostitutes and kings sit down as equals at Jesus' table. Men and women sit down as equals at Jesus' table. Jews and Gentiles sit down as equals at Jesus' table, be all because of his impartial and blessed grace. Apostle Paul says it this way, There is no difference then, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace. You see, Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom of good advice. Jesus did not come to just give good principles about how to live. Jesus came to make a new family. He came to adopt the outsiders. 
into his family so that they might have life. You see, Jesus' kingdom is one of good news, and it's good news for you and me. And what we remember and what we celebrate at Christmas is not just the birth of a baby, but what we remember is the coming of that true and better king whose kingdom does not end and whose faithfulness does not fade. And what we celebrate at Christmas is the ushering in of his true and better kingdom, which graciously and impartially turns outsiders into the adopted family of God. You see, Jesus is the true and better king we all desperately needed. And his kingdom is the one we have all been deeply longing for. See, every week at River City here, what we do is we take communion every week. And what we're doing when we're reminding ourselves about, when we're reminding ourselves in communion is how we get to partake in that family. Why we get to be a part of that. Why when we look back on that family line, we look back with a gracious and hope-filled, life-giving joy. Because Jesus left his home and became an outsider like us so that we could come home with him. You see, he left his throne and his glory and the worship that he was enjoying in heaven. Philippians 2 says that he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And together when we take communion, what we are doing with the bread and with the drink are reminding ourselves of Jesus' body and blood which were broken and shed for us so that we could be forgiven, that we could be accepted, that we might be able to be adopted by God into his family by his grace. And so what we are doing when we take communion is we are proclaiming the gospel. We are reminding ourselves about who God is and all that he has done. You need to hear this. Communion does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him. Nothing you and I can do can save us or change our standing with God. Instead, it is Jesus whose standing with God we receive by faith when we put our hope in him. That's our sureness. That is our hope. And so communion for us is not a way to get back in the good graces of God. Communion is a way to celebrate the grace that we have received that we could never earn and that we can never lose. So this morning, if you have trusted Jesus and you have believed the gospel, then during our time of worship, I'd encourage you, go back and take communion. There's two tables in the back, one on the left and one on the right, and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice, and that's how you take communion here. You don't need to be a member here at River City. You just need to belong to Jesus. See, some of you are here this morning, and you have never trusted in this Jesus this morning. You have never known him and placed your faith in him to be the promised one, the appointed one, the Messiah, the one who has come to overcome your sin, the one who has come to overcome the death that you deserve, the one who has come to overcome the sin that you have committed. See, the invitation of Matthew's gospel to you this morning is to come and to surrender to that king. He is a gracious and good king who has the life you are so desperately looking for, and he has the kingdom you so long to be a part of. It is a kingdom full of upside-down values. It is a kingdom full of his grace and his mercy and his endless blessings. See, there are no more genealogies in all of the Bible. They do not matter. What matters is how you respond to him. All of the genealogies, they have all been pointing to him. They all have all been waiting for him. And so the question this morning is, how will you respond to the one who has come? 
It all, it all rests on that. There are some of you here who are this morning who have forgotten how good the news of Jesus' coming is. You have forgotten how much you needed saving and how graciously and abundantly God has met your need. And the gospel and Christmas has become old and stale. And when you think about it, you just have like this meh in your heart. You see, the solution to that problem is not more songs. The solution to that, not pro- that problem is not more bells. It's not more rah-rah. Right? It's not more holiday. It's, it's not more wanting it enough. The solution to that problem is to see how much you needed the king and his kingdom. You see, when we recognize how much we needed to be saved, when we recognize how great our need was, how desperate our longing for this kingdom, his kingdom to come was, oh, then when we hear its announcement, our hearts will leap with joy because what we'll have realized is that the one who we really long for the one who we really need he's already come he came long before we even knew we needed him and he has come so that we might have life you see for all of us the invitation of Matthew's gospel as he introduces the King Jesus to his kingdom is for us to submit our lives to King Jesus and to join him in bringing about his kingdom. You see, the greatest promise that God's people ever received in the Old Testament was that Jesus would come. And the greatest promise that we have received in the New Testament is that he is coming again. Hebrews 9, 28 reads this way. It says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for his return. You see, the invitation for us at Christmas is to remind ourselves of the one who came and the one who is coming again. That we might treasure and enjoy and celebrate that he kept his promise to come and that we might live with eager anticipation that he will come again. You see, that truth, that transforms our lives. It causes us to live differently. It changes our values. It changes our priorities. It changes the things we say yes and no to. It changes our loves. You see, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom that causes us to live in an upside-down kind of way for our good, but more than anything, for the great glory of the king who has come and is coming again. Let us pray. Jesus, we come with hearts that are so full of gratitude for you this morning. Jesus, that you would come. God, that you kept your promise. God, that you didn't just leave us stuck in sin without hope and without life. Jesus, you came. The promised son came. You came as a humble servant, but you came also as a great king who is ushering in a kingdom to which no other kingdom can compare. God, we 
we ask that you would graciously show light to us so that we might see you as the king that we need. God, that we might surrender to you as the king that is worth surrendering to and that we might see the goodness of your kingdom and join you in it. God, thank you that you are graciously and patiently and lovingly calling us into a relationship with you, into being adopted into your family and into being a part of your great kingdom's advancing. God, in response to you, God, out of joy and gratitude for all that you have done, out of, out of a thankfulness that you kept your promise and came. God, would you fill us with a responsiveness to you that looks like lives that are given totally for your kingdom and your purposes and your glory. Jesus, you are the king who is with it, and your kingdom is beyond compare. And so thank you that you have promised that you would come, and you did. And thank you that you have promised that you would come again, and you will. We need you to empower us to live in light of those two comings. God, we pray these things in your good name. Amen.